Welcome everyone, good to see such a good turnout for the first in our series of public lectures on behalf of the Cambridge Muslim College for this term, and we're kicking off in style with a, an old uh, friend of mine, Professor uh, Dan Nadigan, who's an associate professor currently at uh, Georgetown University at the Prince Waleed Centre for Muslim Christian Understanding, which is at uh, long and distinguished track record, including a spell as one of the leading lights in Islamic studies of the Gregorian in Rome, as a member of the Society of Jesus, and as somebody who I've engaged with, uh, not just academically, but also, as it were, humanly, and seeing how important it is to him personally, as well as as a scholar, to bring together the, the soul, as well as the, the mind of the Muslim and the Christian. So it's a great honour to have you with us uh, down this evening in our little new obscure institution. Uh, you, you bask in reflective glory. And the subject is, I believe, will we ever understand each other? Yes. yes. <laughs> Which I hope the answer will be positive. The floor is yours. Thank you, too. Well, good evening, and, and thank you for uh, thank you for coming, and thank you for that uh, generous introduction, Tim. Uh, I, I wanted to choose a, a rather provocative title, um, in the, and uh, will we ever understand one another? Is I think I think uh, sufficiently provocative to uh, to make one one blush a bit. Uh, let me begin uh, by underlining a word from from that title, and that's the word understand. Uh, I'm going to distinguish at the outset between understanding uh, and agreement. Uh, many people think, imagine that, that agreement and understanding are simply synonyms for one another. Uh, and I, I don't think that's the case, particularly in this, uh, in this field. Uh, I think Tim will agree with me. I mean, we've known one another uh, for quite a long time now, and we I think we understand each other, but we don't agree, uh, and that's fine. Many people imagine that the task of interreligious dialogue is to arrive at an agreement between the parties, uh, whether by the negotiation of claims or on the basis of demands for equality and reciprocity, or by shaming the other uh, to extract concessions. No wonder so many people are skeptical uh, about interreligious dialogue and are, and are hesitant to engage in it if that's the way they see it. The Quran does not seem to expect that we will come to agreement until the day when we return to God uh, and we will be informed of the, of the things, the truth of the matters about which we disagreed uh, as it says in various places but in Surah Al-Ma'idah verse 48 particularly but perhaps by then we might think it's a bit too late uh, to come to an agreement. Of course, there are many things, uh, mostly ideals, on which we seem to agree fairly straightforwardly. Ideals like justice, peace, freedom, love. Yet there are as many variations within our two communities about what those ideals actually mean and how they play out in practice uh, as there are between our traditions. And so there it's a case of apparent agreement, yet uh, not always of, of real understanding. There are some other things in which we, we uh, might claim to agree, but the other party is not really satisfied that we do agree. Uh, I'm thinking 
of the example perhaps of the, the word in common uh, to which we are called in uh, Surah Al-Imran, uh, verse 64, uh, this uh, kalima sawab that we are, we are called to agree on, that we will not worship anyone but God and will not associate anything with him, nor will we take one another as lords apart from God or instead of God. Now a Christian would want to agree with that and say, yes indeed, uh, we do believe only in one God. We do not associate partners with God. Uh, well, we do sometimes, but in the, in the heart of our, uh, our creed tradition, we are not, we don't see ourselves associating partners with God. Perhaps to the surprise of, of most Muslims, it, Christians would say that it is precisely that attempt to be true to the faith in the unity of God that gives rise to uh, the Trinitarian language, which seems so problematic for, for Muslims. But I'll say a little more about that later. Bernard Lonergan, uh, a famous Jesuit uh, philosopher, theologian, uh, used to observe that much of what we call disagreement uh, is really nothing more than confusion. We're not really understanding one another's use of words. We're not really understanding uh, the way the terms function in our traditions, much of what we think of as disagreement is really just confusion that needs to be overcome. Real disagreement, in Lonergan's sense, is something almost to be treasured. Real disagreement uh, comes about when, when we've taken the trouble to attend carefully to one another, uh, to understand each other, and come to the point where we'd say, well, I, we have to agree to disagree. Real disagreement is not simply the confusion of not really understanding one another. It's, it's something which is achieved almost uh, at the end of a long process of taking one another seriously uh, and attending carefully to what the other is saying. I say it's to be treasured not because I think disagreement is necessarily a... Uh, the ideal we ought to be aiming at. But our disagreements uh, alert us to the most central aspects of our faith. When we disagree, when we are challenged, when other believers uh, are perplexed by what we say, it, it pinpoints for us uh, the, the area where we have to work at how we express things, how we think through things, how we uh, proclaim uh, different aspects of our faith. So I, I always think of, of disagreement and uh, my experience of, of many years of uh, Muslim-Christian relations is that it has been very enriching for my theologizing because, precisely because Muslims press me. The, the students that, that I used to have in Rome, the students I had in Washington, uh, people in, in conferences or seminars uh, like the Building Bridges seminars that Tim and I have been in with the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, these, are, these are places where, where there is a pressing on the central points of our faith. Uh, and so it, it is very uh, creative, I think, for, for our theologizing. I hope I will not disappoint you uh, if I say that I'm, I'm not planning to address uh, this evening, except perhaps implicitly, some of those issues that are more 
uh, a function of cultural and ethnic difference or of asymmetries of power or of political expediency or, or mere prejudice. I'm not talking about those kind of disagreements and understandings. Those are pressing questions for the people whose lives are affected by them, but they need to be addressed in the particular circumstances in which they occur. One has to deal with um, asymmetries of power in, in that context. What I want to do is to talk about some things which, which affect all Muslims and all Christians, regardless of, of whether we might be uh, colleagues in a theology department or, or whether we might be, uh, on the one hand, a, a wealthy oil sheikh and, uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, a poor Christian beggar somewhere. It's not, it's not those issues of, of politics and, uh, and identity and so on that I want to deal with. Um, you, you can't find a universal solution that will deal satisfactorily with the, the anti-Muslim prejudices of a Donald Trump, as well as the Christian animus, the anti-Christian animus of Boko Haram, for example. So my focus will rather be on those perennial questions that have been at issue between Muslims and Christians since the beginning. I'm going to divide what I say into two parts. The first thing is about attitudes. Uh, attitudes which, which stand in the way uh, of our mutual understanding. Uh, and then I want to move on to some particular points at which, having taken a, uh, a particular, a more positive attitude, we might come to some, uh, some uh, clearer understanding of, of our differences. The first attitude, uh, and it's something which people who work in, in interfaith uh, often experience, and I, you don't even have to work in interfaith to, to experience it, it's this sense of uh, it's this mutual attitude of moral superiority. It's, it's extraordinarily galling uh, that we, we approach one another uh, from, from the heights of our ideals and we stand in judgment over the, the bitter reality of other people's failures to live up to their ideals. And of course the people on the other side do exactly the same thing. Uh, they, they stand up on the heights of their ideals about, about justice and peace and, and so on and look down on people from, uh, from the other tradition. Uh, this is this is one of the most, I think, uh, destructive attitudes, and it's the most uh, frustrating for someone for someone who works in this field, because you find yourself standing in the middle, and you you want to say to the the Christians who are who are acting in this way, have you ever really considered Christian history? Have you ever really considered the reality of what? The, the gap between uh, our ideals and our practice uh, and you want to say the same thing to Muslims uh, an example I was I was giving a, a talk in New York once uh, begging for money uh, to help in Rome and the, the, the topic of my talk was what, what I have learnt from Muslims uh, at the Gregorian University in Rome and the, the, the audience was all Catholic pretty much uh, so that, this rather shocked them that I might actually learn, learn something from Muslims at a Catholic university. 
uh, indeed a papal university. But uh, uh, yes, I, after someone came up to me and he said, uh, isn't, isn't it great that you know, Christians are so much better than Muslims because Jesus told us to love our enemies? Uh, whereas the, the Muslims, in the, for example, in the Common Word document, uh, say God wants us to love our, love our neighbor as ourselves, but the Christians have to love their enemies. I, I wanted to say to the fellow, how much do we actually love our enemies? Does it make us better because, because this unrealizable ideal is held out to us? Uh, or why, why do we think we can look down on other people simply because there is an ideal about loving one's enemies? In, in one respect, it makes us uh, it gives us less moral standing because we we fall so much further short uh, of loving our of loving our enemies. If we manage to love our neighbour, that would be that would be something. But we fall much further short of of that other ideal. But this sense that uh, somehow the the ideals of our uh, traditions uh, give us the right to look down on on the realities of the others. That's a that's a thing which I, th- I think uh, undercuts so many efforts uh, in interfaith dialogue. On the other hand, when, when that happens, of course, a lot of interfaith dialogue uh, seems to want to go in the direction of what I call I'm okay, you're okay. Uh, most of you are probably not old enough to remember in the... Uh, in the 60s and 70s, there was a book called I'm Okay, You're Okay. It was a sort of pop psychology book. Uh, and the idea was that all human interactions ought to be aiming towards this, this transaction. It's a, a, a style of it called transactional analysis where you're saying to the other person, I'm okay and you're okay. We'll all be okay. And that's uh, because what we sometimes do is, is say, well, I'm okay, but you're not okay. They say, well, yeah, well, you're okay, but I'm not okay. Uh, I think uh, a lot of interfaith uh, work is, is, uh, seems to be aiming at a, an I'm okay, you're okay discussion. So we all sit around and we, we say, oh, you're nice people. And uh, we say, oh, no, yeah, you're nicer people. Oh, no, 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 you're really nicer than we are. Aren't we good? Uh, no one actually believes it. Uh, I, I don't know how many times I've been in, in situations like this where everyone is making nice, nice, and we're talking about, oh, you believe in love? We believe in love too. Fancy that. You believe in peace? We believe in peace. Isn't it great? No, we're okay, you're okay. But then at a certain point, someone will get frustrated and say, yes, but how can you say that? You know, when, when you've got people going in and shooting up mosques, or how can you say that when, you, when you've got. Uh, when people, uh, you know, the children, the children that Jesus cared for are not safe in, in their own churches, how can you say all these things? This, uh, it bursts out from time to time, and the truth is there underlying it. We, we say, I'm okay, you're okay, but we don't really believe the other is okay. Now, I think the attitude, I, I think, is... Uh, the most fertile ground for any any real interfaith dialogue 
any real understanding of our of our dis- differences and our similarities would have to be based on a I'm not okay, you're not okay honesty. It has to be based not on a statement of ideals where we, we treat our ideals like museum pieces and we bring them and we show them and everyone goes, oh, that's beautiful, don't touch. We bring them and we, we say, this is ours, isn't it beautiful? But don't touch it, don't look too close, don't get it dirty. The day when we can come together and, and be completely honest about ourselves, that is the day when we will start to move uh, towards mutual understanding. That attitude of, of moral superiority, which is, which is so widespread uh, on both sides, uh, is, uh, is killing what we hope to achieve. It, it kills understanding. We have to get to the point where we can acknowledge that for all the ideals of our traditions, for all that our traditions have been striving to understand and to know what God desires for us, uh, to know uh, what God's dream for creation is, and to guide us towards that. For all that, uh, our traditions have not succeeded in transforming the human race in the way they hope to. Christianity has not succeeded in the West, clearly, as any Muslim can tell you, uh, in transforming uh, our societies into just societies, into, into societies where, uh, where the vision of Jesus is truly lived and lived out in politics and economics and, and so on. Our tradition has failed to do that. By the same token, uh, it's not up to me to be honest about, about the Muslim tradition, it's up, up to the Muslims among us. But we know that uh, just, from, just from looking at the world even today, uh, the dream uh, of, of the kind of perfect society of, of justice and of equality and, and so on, uh, of obedience to God, of respect for one another, has not, has not, uh, does not exist now. The Islamic tradition, for all its uh, for all its ideals, has not succeeded. Neither of us, neither of our traditions, has succeeded in transforming the world the way we believe uh, God God dreams of it being. So we have to start there. I think uh, we both speak uh, often of God's mercy, and yet too often we act as though we don't really need it. We act as though you know, that God has nothing to forgive us for because we really are we really are very good. But if we are serious about, about proclaiming God as merciful and, and the, the essential nature of the mercy of God, then we have to acknowledge also that, that we are in need of that mercy. Uh, that we have failed. That we do need repentance. Uh, I was reading the other day uh, something by the, the uh, American novelist and essayist uh, uh, Marilyn Robinson and she was bemoaning the way public life has gone in, in the United States these days, uh, which I think you're aware of uh, she talked about the kind of religion that was, that was emerging there uh, as a, 
there's a, a strong sense of uh, individual salvation, a strong sense that there's, there's an urgency to step across the line, to be part of the group, to be in the territory of the saved which then gives you the right to turn around and look at the people who have not stepped across that line uh, and treat them uh, with contempt, uh, to treat them uh, with ignore. She says it's, uh, it's brought a harshness, a bitterness, a crudeness and a high-handedness into the public sphere. Now I think, Mutatis Mutandis, we can see that uh, not just in, in, the, the, in the U.S. and its current uh, political circus, but we can see it in, in public, public sphere throughout the world. This, we can see it in its Islamic forms as well. Of this sense that we have the truth, we know you must be in, in, you must step across the line into this territory. The others are all excluded. They are treated with harshness, with cruelty, and so on. Uh, this is a, it's an attitude which is, which is, uh, which suffuses uh, our traditions uh, and needs to be addressed. So that's, that's the first issue of, of attitude, this a certain ethical humility, a realism about who we are and how we have failed uh, and what remains still to be done. Uh, in our in our following of of what God desires for us, the second attitude uh, is another kind of humility which which follows from this to a certain extent. It's a, a humility uh, about what we can know and understand. Too often, I think, uh, when when we come into interfaith dialogue, we present one another with with finished statements. Uh, creeds or uh, theological positions all worked out as though somehow, yes, we know this. This is simple. You know, I, can, I, can give you, I can give you the creedal formula and, and that's what Christians believe. Or a Muslim can come along and say, this is what we believe about God. But if we, if we have a, uh, this other kind of humility, an epistemic humility, then uh, we have to realize that, that for all our attempts to express the truth uh, that we find uh, offered to us by God in, in re- revelation and, and in nature and in so many ways, uh, we will never fully be able to express that truth. Uh, every, every statement of, of, creedal, uh, of a creedal nature with which we come up uh, still needs to be explored, uh, to be critiqued, to be developed. There, there are still people writing books uh, about questions that in some sense uh, were settled, settled by authoritative councils back in the, the 4th and 5th century. Uh, so these things, these things are not closed and finished and simple. A humility towards what we what we proclaim about God uh, involves recognizing that, that theologizing, the theology still goes on and one needs to, to explore these uh, and to have them explored, to have them uh, 
to, to listen to the echoes uh, back from the other and the perplexities of the other. In this, I, I think uh, you find you find very often, not not often in, in interfaith conversations because people are usually too polite. Uh, but you find it outside interfaith com- conversations. People say, "Oh, they believe such and such." You know, imagine that. Uh, they believe that about the Quran. How could you possibly believe that? They believe that about Jesus. How could you imagine that? Uh, we we're very very easily dismissive uh, of of positions of faith which have been arrived at with enormous goodwill and enormous struggle by some of the best minds uh, of our respective traditions uh, over centuries. These are, not, these are not child's games. These are not things that somebody sat down and thought up one Saturday afternoon uh, so he might preach it on a Sunday. These are, these are, not, uh, these are not toys. So part of our, our epistemic humility is to treat with with enormous respect uh, the, the struggle that has gone into uh, developing these positions and arriving at these theologies rather than simply looking at the, the surface of them uh, and uh, taking them in jest. That really brings me to the, the third attitude. It's a, the third attitude really uh, comes out of the, those first two. And this is to assume uh, goodwill and honest listening for the word on the part of the other. To assume that the other person is, is sincerely listening for a word from God. That the other person is not uh, a person who because he or she belongs to another tradition, is therefore closed to what God is, is saying. Uh, to, take, to take the other person seriously, even when I don't myself initially hear the word of God in, in the place where that other person is hearing it, I still take that person seriously as someone who is listening for the word of God. Uh, to be listeners for the word not simply people who say, oh yes, we've heard the word and we've put it in a book and there it is. Uh, there's, there's an enormous difference between being a constant listener for the word in prayer, in the reading of scripture, in, uh, in various mystical practices and so on. To be the hearing of the word, which as God says in, in the Quran, uh, if, all the, if all the forests of the of the world were, were pens and the seven seas were ink and another seven came to help them, it would not exhaust what God has to say. So the idea that, that we are still listeners for a word uh, that we haven't grasped yet, we haven't got under control everything that, uh, the depth of what God has to say, uh, that is a, this, an essential at- attitude that we have to the other. Now that, that third point brings me to the first of my, uh, my uh, points of understanding, misunderstanding. And that's the question of, of the word of God. 
I think many of you know. Uh, Audiovisual aids. Uh, most most interfaith work takes uh, takes for granted uh, the kind of schema that we find in the Quran uh, regarding prophets and scriptures. So we have Moses. Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, the prophets, and the scriptures that they wrote, the books, the Torah, Injil, and Quran. <coughs> of course, th- this many Christians will, will accept this for, for the sake of argument not for the sake of argument, for the sake of agreement perhaps um, yes, let's, since this is the way the Quran puts it, let's, let's take this as, as the basic uh, structure of our thinking what ends up happening of course is that we, we, we have this game uh, maybe some of you have played it yourself uh, our book's better than your book uh, our prophet's better than your prophet <laughs> It, this it doesn't help us uh, to get over that because you, you know how the, the thing goes. Uh, well, of course, your prophet was very nice. He was very spiritual and all that sort of thing. But in the end, he had to be rescued by God because he, he failed to to create uh, a political system and, and so on as God wants it to be. But it was that our prophet succeeded in that with the, the Sharia and, and so on. He created a community which has continued in history. Oh yes, but you, well, your prophet was uh, yes, but he was a military man, and our prophet wasn't military, and we don't like military. And back and forth it goes, and it goes nowhere. Uh, it's been going on for 15 centuries now, uh, and uh, we still haven't got a, a result. And the same, the same when it comes to the texts of our scriptures. Oh well, yes, of course, the Injil is is a wonderful. Uh, scripture from God, but of course you don't have the, the original Injil because you've got four, well, four that you admit to, and then of course there are the others that you're hiding, and you know, there's the, the Gospel of Barnabas and, and so on and so on. Uh, whereas uh, our scripture, of course, has been kept uh, uh, faithfully and identi- identically right from the beginning and so on, safeguarded, so that that's our book's better than your book. And we say, oh yes, but we don't particularly like your book because it's got this in it, it's got that in it, and we, we don't find a narrative structure like we, we're used to from, from our scriptures, so we're not really happy with your, we think our book is much nicer. This game of prophets and books uh, gets us nowhere. Uh, I, I want to propose a, a different game, if we can call it a game, not really, not really a game. So instead of, instead of uh, thinking of each other as, as uh, people of the scripture, what if we thought about each other as people of the word? Ahlat Kalam rather than Ahlat Kitab. Uh, we say, for the here is, here is God's word in history. God's word spoken in history. Here is the, the human channel 
in which God's word was was expressed in history. Uh, not the author of the of these scriptures, but the channel through which God revealed a human channel, a man like Moses, a man like Muhammad. Uh, the word, the word of, of God is is much more than a human text. Um, the thing is, uh, for Christians, if, if you want to understand where, where Christian theology really goes, then what needs to, to come in, in here is, is not a text so much as a person. You might be familiar with this, but it's, in, in one respect, you know, if we can, if we can get, uh, we may not agree on it, but we will understand one another better if we understand that, that for Christians, it's Jesus who belongs in this, this line as the Word of God expressed in history. Now that's perhaps a bit counterintuitive to think of God's Word being expressed uh, in a human life. We're, we're used to God's Word being expressed in text, in, in prophetic utterance. Uh, we're also used to God's Word in a way being expressed in creation, in the various signs, the ayat of God, uh, that, we, that are available to us by, simply by, from observation and reflection, uh, because the Word of God uh, comes before any real text. The Word of God is, is something essential to God. The Word of God is not something God thought up one day, so there was no, there was a time when there was no Word. Uh, both our traditions have struggled with this question. What, what is the relationship between God and God's speaking? Was there a time when God didn't speak or couldn't speak? Did God change and then start speaking? Did God started speaking? Did God stop speaking? Uh, none of those things we want to affirm. We, we want to say God's speaking, Kalam Allah, is, is essential to being God. It's a, God is eternal with his word. If, if, if there is no word, then God is not God. So, uh, this is, this is perhaps the, the most interesting, uh, of, of the places where, where we often misunderstand one another because we're having our game of prophets and books and mine's better than yours and mine's better than yours. Uh, but really, this is the place where the most interesting thinking can go on, because this is, these are precisely uh, the places where the, these three faith communities have had to ask themselves the question, well, what is the relationship between what we have, what appears in history, what is expressed in history, and the eternal God, who is clearly not historical? Uh, so... Uh, this is what I want to propose to you. Of course, the question of language comes up. What language does God speak this word? What do we put here? Language. Let's say, let's say Hebrew. Everybody's tired. Language. Language. 
Well, Jesus spoke Aramaic. Uh, hmm? Maybe Jesus spoke some Hebrew. <laughs> he might even have spoken some Greek as well. But uh, what is what is the language in which God's word is expressed in Jesus? Human body. Just a body. With a soul. <laughs> well. Uh, in, in, in John's, in John, the Gospel of John, of course, uh, uh, many of you will be familiar with it. It says that the Word became flesh, which is not simply to say uh, the Word inhabited an empty body, as uh, as though the, the body is is simply um, a container for the Word. You know, the, the body has been emptied. No, it, the Word is expressed. At, Flesh and blood, if you like. Flesh is sort of a shorthand for that. Flesh and blood. Humanity. Uh, God can use humanity as a language. God can use anything, of course, to express what God wants to say. Christians are the people who say, "We, we have seen in this man... God expressing who God is in a defining way. Not simply through him, not, not simply in the things he taught, but in him. Now, it's a really extraordinary claim, and I, I don't expect you to take it, to, take it at face value, because uh, well, in any of these claims, any of these three claims, is an extraordinary claim. What are Muslims saying to the world? They're saying, this text from the 7th century, uh, written in Arabic. This text, though it may seem to people simply to be uh, a religious text which grows out of the matrix of, the, of, the, of late antiquity with echoes of, of biblical law and post-biblical law and rabbinic material and Arabic uh, traditions, what seems to many people to be that is not just that. This is the defining the defining moment of God's self-expression in history. Well, that's a, an amazing claim to make, isn't it? Uh, it's not self-evident. And any more than this is self-evident. For many people, Jesus is a first century Palestinian Jewish carpenter turned rabbi, perhaps turned revolutionary, who knows, everybody, everybody has theories about who exactly Jesus was and how we had to understand him. Uh, but, but Christians are the people who say, no, uh, this, in this life, God in body language, if you like, uh, is expressing in a defining way, in the clearest possible way, who God is. Both of those are extraordinary claims. And, and the, the key element of our understanding of one another is to recognize how extraordinary the claims are that we make. Too many Christians simply say, well, he's God. It's obvious. It says there in the, in the scripture. It says that we, we, we've said it all through the councils. It's not self-evident. This is a, this is a, a recognition with the eyes of faith that, that this is what, what is going on in this event. Nor is it simply self-evident that the Quran is the defining moment of God's speaking in history. Uh, though people believe that.
So this is, this is key. We are going to take each other seriously as listeners for the word. And we have to recognize where is, where is the defining moment of the word? Where is it that, that for, for Christians or for Muslims or indeed for Jews, uh, God has expressed what God has to say. And God doesn't say things that God just sort of thinks up. I mean, God speaks. God's, God's word is, in a sense, God's self. God is not reducible to the word, but God doesn't say anything which is, as it were, made up. I think, I think our traditions agree on that. God, God speaks truth, and God is truth. So what God speaks is God. Uh, this is, this is not a point of agreement. This, this outlines, if you like, our disagreement. Uh, but it might be a point of understanding. Uh, Christians might understand better why it is that Muslims treat the Quran the way they do if they understood that, if they understood this parallel. Many Christians want to say, well, why don't you Muslims just treat treat the Quran as a 7th century text? Why don't you treat it the way we treat the Gospels? And you uh, do your, your critical study of it and you, you uh, take it apart and see how it works and see how it might have been put together and say, oh, this was over here and that's copied from there. This was added later and so on. Why don't you just do that with the Quran, they say. Uh, but, but to understand this, this parallel of the, the nature of the Quran and the nature of Jesus gives Christians a, an insight, I hope, uh, into why it is that Muslims uh, approach the Quran the way they do. Not simply, as many others might, a 7th century Arabic text uh, which needs to be understood and taken apart and uh, compared to everything else that that's going on in that same century in, in the Middle East. Uh, by, this, by the same token, Muslims might understand uh, that w- what's missing here, if you like, is, is a scripture. What's missing here, uh, the New Testament is not parallel to the Quran, nor, nor the whole Bible taken together. It, it is not the parallel for Christians to the Quran. Certainly, uh, the biblical text, uh, Christians believe God is, God is speaking through it, but it's not simply uh, a verbatim text of what God said. And if you ask me, for example, uh, do, I, do I believe that God said to King Saul, uh, you're not going to be king anymore because you didn't kill all the people I wanted you to kill? You, you know, you kept some to be slaves, and you kept some animals to. Uh, you didn't even kill all the animals. You kept some. You said to sacrifice and so on. You didn't kill the king. Uh, do I believe God really said that? I don't. I think that's it. But do, but do I believe as a Christian that what God is expressing and what God wants to express to us is coming through uh, all those texts of the of the Bible? Yes. If you ask me, did God write the letters of Paul? Did God write, or did God dictate uh, the Gospels? No. But 
the word that is Jesus is trying to be expressed through these through these human uh, human documents. So that's that's one of the the pivotal uh, moments I think uh, of mutual understanding, which is not necessarily mutual agreement. But it, and, until we understand this this parallel, we uh, we won't we won't. Uh, really understand one another. See time is moving on. Let me take the bull by the horns. Uh, the, the other thing which of course Muslims find terribly uh, difficult uh, to, to understand is why Christians would talk about this, any kind of threeness in God. Why would Christians affirm Trinity? Uh, what I want to pro- propose to you is that uh, both of us have the same, the same philosophical, theological problem. Uh, not problem, maybe it's a mystery, but we, we both have the same issue. What are we going to say about the relationship between God and God's Word? We've already said, I think we're saying in both our traditions, God's Word is eternal with God. There was no time when God didn't have a Word. There wasn't a time when God was not a speaker. Uh, now, do we do we want to? And both our traditions have have uh, considered this. Do we want to put the word on the on the creature side of of the equation, or is the word on the creator side? What, what's your what's your sense of the, the Muslim tradition? Which side of that line, the division between creature, uh, creator, and creature, should the word go? Creator. 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 The creator side. Uh, I mean, there were arguments, of course, over whether the whether God's speech was created. Uh, Christians are doing exactly the same thing. We want to say this to us is is God's expression in history. This to us is God's word. Well, clearly, both of these things have, in some sense, a created aspect. And God uses, God expresses God's self through this text, Muslims would say. The fact that the words that are used there are words that were also used by poets, pre-Islamic poets, that were also words that people used when they were in the marketplace, people used in their houses, people used for all sorts of purposes which had nothing to do with uh, expressing who God is. God had to take a humanly understandable uh, language in which to express to humans who God is. And so uh, we're, both, we're both caught struggling with this question of how can the eternal word of God, the eternal speech of God, which belongs on the, the creator side of, of that divide, how can that also be somehow here spoken in history and flesh or in words uh, in words which, which can be used the same words can be used to tell lies as to speak that truth how can that be this is a theological conundrum it's not, it's not a game because the thing we're, we're trying to do is, is to protect the, the identity of God with God's word the closeness of God and God's word. This is not simply 
something that God generated at a particular time. God's nature and God's, God's speech are so closely related. So, I could go into, into more detail, but you're, you're probably better off going to listen to Rowan Williams uh, on Tuesday nights. Uh, this, this is our common uh, theological task to, uh, to understand how to think how to think about the relationship between, between God's eternal speech uh, and that speech spoken in our history. And so what, what Trinity is doing, I, I won't go into all of it, but I, I hope you will think of it not as something which is pushing us from belief in one God towards three gods. It's actually pushing the other way. It's saying to us, you believe in a God the creator, God beyond us, God the transcendent, God who is on the other side of the line from everything else that is, God who, who is being, who gives us being. Uh, but you also have the experience of God expressing who God is in history. For Christians, we, we, we claim to see it in Jesus. And you also have the experience, Christians, so we have the experience of God active within the community of believers. God active within the hearts of those who believe. Now, there's a temptation for people with that experience to say, oh, well there's God, and then there are two things that God created. A word, uh, and a sort of spiritual power. And the doctrine of the Trinity is not saying, yeah, that's right, yeah, God's three. It's saying, you, you have this triple experience, if you like. You have this experience of believing in the, in the transcendent God and the experience of encountering God's, God's self-communication in history. And you have the experience of God active as, as spirit within and among the believers. Do not say three. The doctrine of the Trinity is saying, do not say three. This is one God. It's trying to, to keep all those together, saying, all this is, is that these are uh, essential aspects of the one God. So, if you want to understand Christians and our slightly odd Trinity talk, which uh, one must confess, because Christians have been talking to one another so often without listening to anybody else and how it sounds, a lot of our Trinity talk does get out of control. Uh, and there are enough uh, qualified theologians who will say, well, yes, a lot of Christians really are trifles. They really do believe in three gods. They don't want to, but, but when, you, when you listen to what they're actually saying, they're, they're treating God as though there are three uh, the doctrine of the Trinity really is trying to push us back towards one. So uh, I, hope, I hope Muslim listeners will, will think, uh, think carefully about, about what's going on. I think it's been very, been very important for me uh, in theologizing uh, to take seriously what, what Muslims are reflecting back to me about what they're hearing from Christians. And I listen to Christian theology and I think, oh yes, you're right. Uh, we're talking three gods here, the way people are 
so our, our theology and our theological language needs to be got under control. And you know, it took a few hundred years to try and do that in the early time, but then of course it, it falls apart again and needs to be constantly brought back. So there's a there's a, a bit of mutual understanding to be gone through, a bit of work to be done to understand one another from either side there. The other thing which comes with this, the, the other thing which, which uh, tends to baffle, baffle Muslims, and uh, it's probably not surprising given some of the things that Christians say about it, is this question of sin and, and atonement. Uh, again, I, I, I find uh, it's been enormously helpful for me as someone who's been uh, in teaching, teaching situations and, and dialogue situations to hear to get reflected back to what this what this talk sounds like to people, and for me to listen again to, to what what Christians are saying, yeah, they they really are saying God God laid sins on somebody else. And God did the unjust thing of, of saying, oh, we'll make we'll make him pay the price for something somebody else did, and we, or we'll make. Uh, will make everybody pay the price for what Adam and Eve did. Uh, there is a lot of loose theologizing going on, particularly in, in popular preaching and so on. Uh, and it needs to be carefully thought through because Christians have to take account of the fact that a fifth of the world's population, roughly, that, that believes in the God of Abraham, finds what Christians say about that God uh, either incomprehensible at best or blasphemous at worst. And I think this is a... We've got time, yes, we can do it. I think we need to do this. The, the question of original sin, the, the Quran is... Uh, the, the story of, of the creation of Adam and, and the sin of Adam, uh, in some respects it seems to be over and done with pretty quickly. Adam slips, Adam makes a mistake, uh, Adam repents, God forgives. Uh, it is, on the face of it, all over, as well, Muslims would say, it ought to be, because you know, God, God can forgive. God doesn't require mechanisms for forgiveness. God doesn't have to say, oh, no, well, what has to happen is that you've got to do this and that somebody else has to do that, but that can't happen, so we have to get something like this. Muslims rightly say to Christians, what, what's all this, what's all this mechanizing of, of God's ability to forgive? God is forgiving. Adam sinned. Adam repented. God forgave Adam. End of story. Which, which, sorry. sorry, can I quickly ask why, I didn't quite understand why you said mechanizing. What's the, oh, what's the mechanism? Well, uh, Christian theories about atonement, that, uh, the, for example, the way uh, St. Anselm puts it, uh, you know, the, the offense to God by, from Adam's disobedience mm -hmm. was, uh, because God is infinite, it's an infinite offense. Okay. Uh, if Adam is, is to make up, or if humanity as a whole is to make up for that offense that is given to God, because humanity is not infinite, humanity is incapable of 
uh, of, of paying up, you know, balancing the books because we don't, we, everything we have we owe to God already. Mm-hmm. So we don't have any extra that we can say, you know, I'm going to repay the debt to you incurred by, by human disobedience because we have, we have nothing that, that is not already given to us and owed by us to God. So therefore, uh, you know, one of the mechanisms is to say, well, okay, there needed to be a human, a human person who would pay this debt because humans incurred it, uh, but humans are, uh, are finite and so, but the debt is infinite, so what we need is someone who is infinite and human. So therefore, the God-Man. Oh. So that, I mean, that's one of the, one of the. You're pointing to Jesus. Sorry. You're pointing to Jesus. Yes. 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 So, and so the book was called Cur Deus Homo. Why? Why the God-Man? I see. Uh, but so this is these are various mechanisms. I'm, I'm calling them for people saying, you know, how, how does everything get fixed? Uh, but if we look at it this way. Um, what, 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 what happens in, uh, in the, the story of Adam and Eve, which is a dramatization of the human, the human uh, condition, if you like, what we sense in ourselves, is that uh, Adam and Eve prefer, where the Genesis story tells it, they prefer to listen to the voice of the talking snake than to listen to the voice of God. They prefer to, for some reason, they trust the talking snake who says to them, God is trying to cheat you out of something. God has told you not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because it will be the death of you. So this image of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this idea of the, being able to decide for yourself what is good and evil. Knowledge is not a, not a bad thing, but this wanting to be the decider, the knower, in that sense, of what is good and evil, not, not receiving God's knowledge of what is good and evil, but uh, as the Quran would have it, you know, people following their own whims about, about what's right and wrong. So, uh, Adam and Eve in this story, want, they want to believe that rather than being at peace with God, somehow they're, they're in a... Uh, a relationship of, of competition with God. That God is trying to cheat them. They could be, they could be like God, and, and this you have also in the Quranic version. You will live forever. You take this, you take this fruit, you will become like God. This is what human beings want somehow. We don't know why. Genesis, neither Genesis nor, nor the Quran really explain to us what the origin of this this attitude is, we just, it's, it's really just dramatizing it for us. It's something we all sense from time to time. This, this sense that, uh, somehow a lack of trust of God, I call it a lack of faith, uh, somehow a belief that, that God, God's word to us of, of mercy, of forgiveness, of love, and so on, is not really trustworthy. There's something else going on. God is trying to keep us down. We should be able to be free. We, should, we shouldn't have to have these limits on ourselves. And so on. That's, that's the issue uh, that, that is dramatized in the, the Adam and Eve story. 
this somehow out of joint sense of human life. We're not at peace with God and we never have been somehow. We don't know why that is. Now you can blame it on, some people do, on another power, a power of evil, which is over against God. God's in a struggle with this power. Or we can say, we can try and find an understanding of it which doesn't rely on a separate power of evil. I like to think of it this way, that human beings are created, we're created, that's our problem. Why is it a problem? Because we're also creative. It's a lot easier to be a cow than a human being, because as a human being you have this ability to make decisions and to change the world, you can build buildings, you can put money on top of the overhead projector, you can do all sorts of things, you can shape the world. We're not Bari in the sense that God is, we are not the ones who originate the world, but God has given us the ability to shape the world in very many ways. But, and we love our shaping ability, we like to be able to organize things, we like to write, we like to invent, we like to command other people, we like to play politics, we like all those things that human beings can do, which cows are not very good at. We can build, we can build things like the lovely, graceful building of the law library up in the Sidgwick area. If we were just termites, we would build always the same kind of termite. We are creative. But that's our problem, to be both creative and created at the same time, to keep that in balance. God doesn't have that problem because God is only creative. God is not created. We have this this ability to, to, that God has given us, not our own, to shape and, and to create. Uh, and, and we find it hard to hold that, those two together. We would rather be just creators. We would rather just run the earth the way God does. We would rather uh, ignore the needs of any other part of the earth. We do it all the time. We say, I, I want to... I want to drive my car, I want to have a V8 engine, I want to pump all the oil and I want to burn all the lights all night and uh, I don't care about the rest of creation because I am a human being and I have this ability to, uh, to put lots of street lights up and to keep all the, uh, all the lights on in every skyscraper in New York all night and all day. Uh, we can do it. We know how to do it. We have that ability. But we, we don't like to, to recognize our creativity as being exercised within creativeness. That is, that's the fundamental agony of human beings, if you like. Uh, what I think, uh, what constitutes sin is to say, for uh, either I will, I will be the creator, as to say, I will be God. That's one, one kind of sin to completely disregard one's creativeness, one's, one's being uh, part of a fabric with, with all the rest of God's creation. Or, on the other hand, sin is, oh, I, I'm not creative, I can't do anything, I will just sit here and chew my cow, like a cow does. 
Now, we don't expect the car to fix, uh, to fix global warming. But the way people uh, are behaving in the face of global warming, they may as well be just a car. They're refusing to, to use their ability to, to shape all this. So sin, human sin really is, is going one way or the other, and refusing to shape the world in, in God's way, or saying, I will be God. That's, we say it's original sin, not, not because we inherited it from somewhere else, but that's, that's the nature of the human being. Uh, we have this, this, uh, innate tension. It's unlawful, there's, there's no evil in there. It's our inability to hold the two together. It's our inability to acknowledge our createdness. It's our inability to acknowledge the creator, put of God. Uh, so, what, what can save us from this? What can save us from this sense that we are over against God, that we're in a struggle with God and that God is holding out on us and God is playing games with us? The only thing that can save us from that uh, is God, if you like, taking that. Um, not, I, I don't like to think of it in terms of prices and, and so on. What, what can convince a child uh, that a parent truly loves her uh, is if the parent is, is prepared to bear all that all the stuff the child puts on you know all the I hate you I hate you you're the worst parent ever uh, all my friends were allowed to go out and, uh, all the, when the child can be as nasty as um, negative, as ungrateful, as untrusting as possible, and still the parent bears it, and does not strike back, does not uh, respond with hatred, does not respond by cutting the, the ungrateful daughter out of the will, does not respond by saying, well, I'm not paying you school fees, or I'm throwing you out of the house. When the, the proof of love, if you like, is that, is that preparedness to bear everything, all that, that stuff, and still to forgive. And so for Christians, to, uh, that's what we see in the cross. You know, this is a long, a long uh, story, and time is short, we're finishing at eight, and so uh, But maybe it's a story for another time. But that sense, of this is this is not a commerce. This is not a this is not a deal we make with God. We pay this, we do that, and that. There's no mechanism here like that. God had to do this with it. No, God God's being forgiving means that God is prepared to bear everything and forgive. And that's 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 what divine forgiveness is. As distinct, you know, human forgiveness often has its limits. You know, I've done this, I don't know how many times I've forgiven you, uh, day after day after day you do this, you know, it's done, we're over, this marriage is finished, this, no, the, God's, God's forgiveness, God's mercy is limitless, and in a sense human, human evil is, is much, much more limited, you know, God can bear all that. 
not, not enough to destroy God's love and God's mercy. So that's, that's what Christians are, are on about in that. And that's, that's what we see in the cross because we see Jesus uh, as God's expressing who God is in history. Jesus bearing of, of all the stuff that's loaded on him. All the hatred, all the injustice, all the, uh, the abandonment, the fears. Uh, and God saying, well, I am not, I am not done. You know, you cannot outdo my, my mercy. You cannot, you cannot do anything to me. And, you know, Muslim writers quite rightly say to Christians, well, why do you think that, that this horrendous act somehow fixed everything? You know, why, why would you say that this is the worst, if, if what you say is true about Jesus, then this is the worst thing that human beings have ever done? It puts, puts in the shade any other, any other uh, evil, any other sin that human beings may have done. Why would you think that that fixes anything? And, you know, it's a good point. It doesn't fix anything in that sort of mechanistic way. It reveals and enacts uh, the limitless mercy of God that is prepared to bear everything and still hope in us, still forgive us and go forward. Going on too long. So, uh, there are many things, other things I could say. Let me just say one thing by way of conclusion and I'll open it to your questions. Um, it comes back partly to a question of attitude. Uh, you, you, uh, the Muslims among you know that this term, Qibla, the people of the Qibla, the, the people who, who have a point uh, which, which is what unites them, the point to which, towards which they pray. I think a, a lot of our understanding of one another or lack of understanding of one another is because we think in terms of territory rather than orientation. Uh, no, we, we think we think in terms of uh, oh this person's in Islam, out of Islam, or this person in Christianity, and that person's out of Christianity. And this, the idea that that our being in right relationship with God is somehow to do with being in a certain territory of territory of religion uh, really doesn't doesn't stand up to scrutiny. If we think of, of orientation, it might be a more helpful way to, to understand our relationship to one another because we can recognize people who are oriented towards God, who are oriented in the way that God, God wants them to be oriented, even though they don't happen to inhabit the same religious territory as I do. We can recognize uh, people who resonate with the Word of God, even though they don't occupy that space where we say, oh, we're the saved, we're the, we're the chosen ones of God, we're the, we're the real believers, everyone else is damned, or everyone else is, is under judgment. Uh, if, if we attune, if we are ourselves attuned to God, and then to what God is saying, if we are the truly listeners for God's word, then we, we learn to recognize others who are, uh, who are oriented that way. 
sometimes we talk about paths, but paths can be a bit territorial as well. I don't think that always helps us because we tend to treat a path as if this is my path and you've got to be between the edges of this path. But the sense that there might be someone way over there who is in fact, because I resonate with the God of mercy and compassion, I can recognize in that person also a resonating with the God who is mercy and compassion. I recognize our common orientation. So the Qibla, if you like, in this way that I'm using it, is not a geographical point, but it is the point of God himself. And for both Muslims and Christians, a key sense of who God is is mercy, mercy and compassion. So let us try to look for those who are oriented, who we see by their lives oriented to mercy and compassion. Then maybe we'll have a bit better understanding of one another, if not an agreement. Thank you.
who were there for some years, and they had to go and most of the courses they went to were in the theology faculty, and uh, the theology faculty lecturers presumed that, that all, all the people in front of them had grown up as Christians and uh, had probably already been in seminary for, for three or four years, and, and so they knew all the lingo, they knew all the, all the stuff. Uh, what, what I did for, for the Muslim students was to give them some of this right at the beginning, uh, just to say, well, you know, here, is, here is a structure for thinking about all this, uh, into which you might fit the bits and pieces that will come your way in, in various theology lectures. I, I, uh, I'm a real believer in, in relational theology. People talk about, these days a lot about comparative theology. And I, uh, I know what they're talking about. Mostly they're doing it with Hindu, Hindu texts and Buddhist texts and so on. They're, they're looking at traditions which really have no, have, have had no interaction with, with, uh, with the Christian tradition as it's, as it's developed. So they have no fundamental opinion about the Christian tradition. Uh, theology done in, in this context where we're Muslims and Christians and, and Jews also have learned an awful lot from, from Jewish professors particularly about, about thinking in these terms. Uh, that is something that the only way you can, can really do it satisfactorily is by getting to know the, the various traditions. You can't, that, that's why I say that, uh, one of the difficulties of Christian theology over a long time has, has been that it's simply a conversation for Christians and it hasn't, if it, if it has taken account of, of Muslims at all, it's, it's simply said, well, they don't get it or, you know, they refuse that and it's clear that they won't. Uh, to do a, to do a Christian theology which says, all right, I, I have tried to understand your tradition. I, I understand why this perplexes you. I understand why you object to that way of thinking. And you're right. You have a good point. Uh, that kind of theology is something I try to do, and that's, I try to write a, a short book of that at the moment, which kind of bring all these things together. Uh, but it's something which, uh, which is a desideratum. I mean, it really needs to be done. Uh, I think. Some, sometimes interfaith stuff is, is simply saying, okay, well, let's, let's just be nice together, uh, rather than really dive down into the theology and, and allow ourselves to be questioned. And, uh, so there's not much of it, unfortunately, uh, but uh, I'm trying to train up some people <laughs> who try to do it. But it, it, a lot of it depends on getting that structure right. Uh, is there uh, an equivalent uh, to the major Muslim traditions of the universal pacifism? And if there's not, what what what, what is, I mean, as a Christian, as a Christian looking in the sense of the converse of that question, what what, uh, what could we look at? No, it, uh, you, you, I think I think it's fair to say that uh, in the Islamic community, authority is much more democratic, if you like, and much more negotiated. Uh, there is no other religious tradition which has a structure of authority the way, uh, particularly the Roman Catholic Church does, where there are authoritative statements and we know the level of authority and so on. And even then, of course, these things still, still are discussed and, 
and reworked. Uh, in the Islamic tradition, you, you don't have an authority that can impose these kind of things. You do have some creedal formulas, but creedal formulas often are simply making a statement about particular theological issues that were that were being argued about, like the status of the Quran as God's speech and whether it's created or not created, uh, etc. So they're not, uh, if you like, complete statements of, of faith. Uh, you might say that of the Nicene Creed too. I mean, in some sense, it's a complete statement of faith, but it doesn't mention it doesn't mention the Gospels really. It doesn't, it doesn't, there are lots of things it doesn't talk about, uh, so it's not a there is no compendium that way, but uh, there are people who write uh, write works on you know, Islam as Aqidah. Uh, you know, these are the these are the issues of of belief uh, and Sharia. You know, these are the, the issues of practice. So, so there are works like that, but uh, there's nothing that you can say. Well, this is the one that everybody has to everybody has to agree with. Next. Um, I had observations really, not questions. And I yes. found the way that you started really interesting because, um, and the title especially, because straight away I wanted to say, not as a way to challenge anything, but as I say, just observe, will we ever understand one another? I straight away wanted to say, will we ever understand ourselves? Because we understand ourselves in relation to God first, and then, what God willing, we understand ourselves to God. We're brought in by God, we're taken out by God. And that time in between, I feel, is a time spent trying to understand ourselves in relation to God, understanding how to be vulnerable, how to be all those things to make us clearer, straighter, more, more engaged with everything and everybody, so that we do end up somewhere when that time is everlasting, that is good. And anything that we put, humanly, in the way of that, and all those things you pointed to, moral superiority, or lack of humility, or bringing an agenda, which means we don't listen to other people because we brought that agenda, or bringing an idea about what it is to be Christian, on mass for Christians, or bringing in terms that, say, Muslims believe. Because human beings are so broad, we don't all believe in the same way. We don't all practice in the same way, any more than Jews or Christians do. So, everything you seem to say pointed to that uh, What's the word? Uh, I don't know what the word is. Pointed to God, you know, because we just have to be in a room like this, sharing what we are as human beings. Yeah. And if we get complicated or academic about it, sometimes I feel, because I'm not, I'm very simple and I'm very non-academic. And sometimes I feel that can actually be not in our favour because we, we can overcomplicate. We put our barrier before we've even opened our mouths. That, that can be the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, we we have a we have a history of yeah. uh, you know, we we have a history of 
of good relations of people living together with mutual understanding for centuries in different places. But we also have a history right from the beginning of questioning one another's understanding of God and so on, and of proposing, particularly because the Quran wants to take Christians to task for certain things that Christians say about God. So it's not simply, and I think Christians have to take that seriously. I mean, if Muslims take the Quran seriously, I think Christians should take the Quran seriously and its critique and ask ourselves, why do we say that? Is that what we say? Why do we say that? Are we misusing language? Are we saying things of God which are not right? So I do think that there's an agenda for us to understand, and in a context like this of a university and a place of study and so on, this is the place where we can explore these things. It's not a conversation for everybody, although what I try to do in my work is to bring this kind of understanding to people in parishes and other places that invite them. So I think ideas function in religion. It's not simply, but I agree with you. I mean, I found hospitality is one of the most significant things in interfaith relations, ultimately to develop that. There's such a thing as a theological hospitality, which I think is what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to welcome Muslims into the slightly messy theologizing that Christians have been doing, rather than saying, no, don't look at all that mess. So the I'm not okay and you're not okay is quite powerful, because that allows us to all be in the sight of the world. Yes. With all our warts and everything. It points to us as individuals, and we're here between birth and death, as those individuals, and we're accountable at the right point of time. And that is a difference. That's something... That we have in common. One more question. Towards the beginning of the lecture, you talked about how, as Muslims and Christians, when we get together in conversation, we try and find common ground initially, but inevitably the conversation turns towards, we're better for this reason, or you're worse for this reason. And then from that point, you came up to what you've written on the board over there, about the word. But what I found from that point is, and even you yourself said, that it's difficult for others to understand. So does that now mean that, inevitably, in the end, we can't find common ground, and there is no way to come together and leave having held the same values and the same amount of respect? Common ground, well, it depends what you mean. I would say, for example, if someone comes to agree with me about Jesus being the word of God spoken in history, in the language of flesh and blood, then that person has become a Christian. If someone agrees that 
the Qur'an is the defining moment of God's revelation in history. And that text speaks differently about Jesus than I would do, than I would say that Christian has become a Muslim. So there are, I think, honest interfaith engagement does open oneself. You do open yourself to say, I might be convinced if I really listen to this person. And it happens, of course. People do. They do listen to other believers, and they do say, well, you're right. That is the truth about God. I will become a Muslim, or I will become a Christian. So this is not, it's not a game to be undertaken lightly, because if we are honest in our opening to one another, then we do take the risk that we might be convinced. So it's not necessarily common ground in the sense that we can say, oh yes, but we agree with both these things, and we agree with the Jews that God's defining moment of self-expression was on Mount Sinai. They're not exactly compatible. That's why I was talking about understanding, to understand the structure of Christian believing and thinking, and how that relates to, there are many things that we can find common ground on, and very often those will be matters of action, matters of politics, perhaps. We can find common ground on what we find acceptable here and there. We come with different approaches to what is the role of law, for example. Is the law there to make people virtuous, or is it simply to put some limits on vice? What is the law capable of doing in terms of, so we come with different opinions about that, but we can find common ground on certain things. But I think there comes a time when you say, well, to believe X is to be a Christian, to believe Y is to be a Muslim. That's fine. I mean, I want, I suppose I wish everybody saw in Jesus what I see in Jesus, but that doesn't mean that I will not speak to you unless you agree with me about Jesus. I think you probably wish that I saw in the Quran, after all my years of studying, what you see in the Quran. As it happens, I don't, but that doesn't mean we have to be at odds. That's partly what I meant about Ehrlich Kibler. If it is the one God who is behind somehow, if we are really people listening for the word, which is in the essence of God, then it will show, we will resonate. The creative kun of God is what holds us in being, both of us. And if we allow ourselves to resonate with that word of God, which is creative and which holds us in being, then with goodwill, we can come together to do what God hopes for us. You can continue the conversation more informally with next door where drinks and snacks will have to be served. But we're really grateful to you for speaking. I'm grateful for the interview as well. And also, I think there's money on the drink. Thank you.
nice to know the college has money somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but thanks. Thanks. Thanks again. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.